Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Global Captive Podcast supported by Legacy Specialists R&Q, providing some captive insurance context to the results we are seeing from the US presidential election. Over the next 30 minutes, we are going to focus on three areas of perhaps immediate interest to captive insurance companies, their owners and those who service them. They will be the impact on federal legislation relating to the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act, known as PREA, and some of the COVID relief package efforts. And we'll have Peter Halperin, partner at Passage Law Firm, joining us to go through this. The second area will be how the tax landscape could change for captives, particularly in the event of a Biden presidency, with friend of the podcast, Mikhail Rabstein, a tax partner at EY. And lastly, how the investment markets have responded to the events this week and where we expect to be, with an update from Sanjay Joshi and Chris DL at Friends of the Podcast, London and Capital. A few caveats should be provided, of course, and some time context in terms of when I am recording. Right now, it is 10 a.m. Eastern time on Friday, the 6th of November. So there is no confirmed winner of the presidential race in the United States. And the Senate race is looking particularly tight, but probably a Biden presidency and a slim Republican majority in the Senate is where we are headed and that's that's a bit of a big if I think at the moment and maybe that statement will look silly even by the time you listen to this or it could have been confirmed but importantly we are going to touch a bit on all the possible outcomes to some degree and how they may or may not have any kind of impact on captive insurers and the insurance market more broadly. Understandably, however, it will probably be a Biden presidency that takes most of our attention as that will likely provide more disruption or change to the legislative priorities or tax policy that could impact captives in the future, as it will be a change from where we've been from the last four years. But first off, let's hear from Peter Halperin, partner at Passage LLP based in New York, who I spoke to on Thursday morning Eastern time. I think one thing to emphasize is that with insurance in the US being a state regulated sector, a lot of topics concerning captives and insurance more generally are usually more relevant to the the state discussion. But there are a few issues related uh, indirectly or, or directly to insurers, including captives that will be impacted by the outcomes of of this election, uh, both presidentially and and in the Congress. One of the big topics since the pandemic hit in March has been the Pandemic Risk Insurance Act, known as PREA. We've discussed it a few times on the pod over the last few months, including with the president of RIMS, Laura Langone, back in July, and RIMS do support PREA, of course. Prior to the election, Pete, where were we up to with PREA in Congress? As you know, and, and I'm sure the folks at, at RIMS are, are probably the closest to the internal machinations of, of what was going on, but, but PREA had been introduced um, by Carolyn Maloney, who's a, a congresswoman from uh, the New York area. And I think like many other things, uh, any anything that was ambitious or visionary coming out of a Democratic House 
uh, was subject to, you know, the, the, the red wall of you know, Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate. And so it, it didn't seem as though uh, it, it was making its way through the Senate. And it, it didn't seem as though anything was going to happen in terms of legislation as we approached um, the election. The only thing that really seemed like it might be on the table um, was some kind of pandemic relief bill or pandemic stimulus bill. And of course, um, that that didn't happen. Uh, what did happen was we got more more uh, Republican judges, but <laughs> nothing on, on these fronts. So, um, you know, there were a couple of other proposals and bills that were kind of floating around, but Priya really, I think, seemed to have the most traction, um, as you probably discussed in the prior settings, you know, Priya was really focused on the future as opposed to uh, getting us through the, um, the current situation. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think if, if we, if we want to switch gears a little bit to, to what, what's coming, you know, I, I think that uh, what, what you're already starting to see in the reporting, and, and obviously we're recording this on, uh, on Thursday morning, uh, Eastern time here in New York. Uh, and so uh, no, no winner has been declared and no results have been finalized. But what it appears is that we'll have a Democratic House again, although maybe with a smaller smaller margin. Um, we'll have a Republican Senate. And uh, there's there's two seats that still remain to be decided uh, in, in January from, from what it appears. And then uh, more likely than not, uh, we'll have a, a Democratic president. And so, you know, I, I think the, the prospects for Priya um, probably don't change that much just because we still have that division in government, except that uh, it would be more likely to be taken up as part of kind of a broader view as to what do we do in terms of attacking this pandemic? Uh, and even though this is a future looking bill, you know, what, 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 what will happen? Although I do think that, uh, you know, they will try to address obviously the, the current pandemic as well, though not in this, not in the PREA context. Yeah, and do you expect um, one of the I've been saying in all these discussions as we look uh, look at what's just happened is, do we expect anything to happen at all between now and if there is an inauguration of a new administration or, or you know make up as a new Senate? Do we expect anything to happen in this kind of next two month period, le- legislation wise? Yeah, I mean, so the the Senate Majority Leader Mitch Mitch McConnell has said that he wants to pass some kind of pandemic relief uh, by the end of the year. And I don't think he was envisioning a a Korea type uh, bill. But um, I think part of the concern is that um, it may be that that we have a 50-50 split in the Senate. Um, and, and as many of your listeners may or may not know, uh, ties are, are, are broken by the vice president. So to the extent that there's that split, um, that would slightly uh, benefit the Democrats, of course, uh, when you're in such a tight legislative environment, a defection uh, by either party uh, could could radically change things. So um, p- putting that aside, the, the, the point being, um, I, I think the Republicans are incentivized to try to pass the kind of bill that they would prefer um, while they still have the presidency and while they still have uh, a larger or slightly larger majority in, in the Senate. Um, most of the Republican senators who were thought to be vulnerable and subject to challenge um, seem to have survived uh, their conflict and, in fact, won by significant margins. And so I, I think they're, they're a bit emboldened. Um, and so they will probably try to pass something narrower than, than what the House had been looking for and perhaps narrower than what the, the president had, had envisioned. And that was part of their pushback to his his push for a, a bill before the election. Um, 
But the particular relevance, I think, to your listeners really is that the key sticking points in those prior negotiations, besides the, the size of the of the relief package, was the uh, Republican Senate wanted to make sure um, that employers would be uh, have, have protections against uh, liability um, if people got uh, sick from COVID. So the idea was they wanted to help businesses open um, by removing the prospect of um, you know the danger to their to, or the liability risk uh, for for danger to their workers. On the Democratic side, that was uh, that was a non-starter, and the general view was we need to if we're going to people are going to go back to work we need to make sure that they're safe and we don't want businesses kind of cutting corners and then relying on uh, liability shields uh, legislative liability shields to avoid um, having to pay for you know their negligence and whatnot and how they rest- uh, kept kept their places so I, I suspect that they'll try to get something along those lines done by the end of the year and you know even if they don't i think given the, the likely makeup of the Senate, it's possible that, um, you know, that's something that they try to horse trade with um, the new administration, assuming there is a new administration uh, early, early in the new year on on some kind of relief bill, if they can't get it done um, uh, now before the end of the year. And of course, you know, any debate over or any resolution to that question regarding um, whether businesses should be uh, liable for someone uh, becoming uh, infected by the coronavirus on their premises or, or while in their custom uh, is, of course, very relevant to the insurance industry and to how it, uh, the kinds of coverages people might be looking for or not in the future. And I will just mention for our listeners that might not be aware, the reason that PRIA is potentially quite relevant for captives is that in the same way as TRIA, captives can access that bat stop that would be expected i think to happen if there was a prior uh, backstop for kind of pandemic financing in the future a captive might be able to kind of access that that backstop yeah i was i was going to say uh, yeah i feel like you and i could just sit down we'd be at a pub you know in in, in normal circumstances and we could we could probably solve all the world's problems i, I believe <laughs> um, but I, I i think in in this realm what i would also point out is um, you know it's a very tough market out there for um, in shorts, um, and, and and frankly, for brokers trying to place uh, assist uh, in shorts with placements, um, which to me kind of inures to the benefit of captives and increases the attractiveness of captives, right? Because uh, it it makes that a more attractive option than perhaps an expensive, clunky, and undesirable policy from an insurer who's reluctant to write a risk. And so I think that that trend is hard market and um, pushing pushing people to explore kind of these captive structures, both as a result of the pandemic uh, itself, and then also just the, the hardening of the markets bodes well for for the captive industry and, and for the growth of, of captives and for those who advise on captives. Um, the only kind of headwind that I potentially see there, although I, I, I'm not exactly sure that this will play out as I'm, I'm, su- I'm suggesting, but um, you know, if there is some kind of massive coronavirus stimulus package, and this is really specific to the states, but if there was one of those packages in, in the U.S. and it did start to address the um, business income losses of the now you know thousands and thousands of, of plaintiffs in current litigations and then probably the hundreds of thousands of businesses that haven't yet uh, filed a lawsuit maybe more you know that that might have an impact on, on all of this because I I think that the insurers have done a good job of uh, marketing and messaging to suggest that you know what's happening now in these business interruption lawsuits is an existential threat to their companies. Of course, if you look at the um, 
you know, Q2, Q3 uh, earnings reports for most of these insurers, you'll see that, that, that that's, you know, just good marketing and messaging. And then the mm, fact they're, yeah. they're doing fine. Um, but, you know, it, it's been the, the messaging that they've delivered. And, and you know, for my part and in, in, in my view, I, I think the messaging from the other side has been um, less effective because they're not as coordinated or well-financed. But, you know, it's largely the same thing, right, which is that this is an existential threat to these small businesses, right? If they can't recover, you know, the two or three or four or six months of lost income, this the pizza place is going to close, the barbershop is going to close, et cetera, et cetera. So to the extent that there is some kind of relief that's available that would you know, provide support for those income losses and offset some of that and create some certainty, perhaps even some kind of grand bargain, you know, that, that obviously would have an effect on, on everyone's view toward uh, capacity, everyone's view toward um, you know, the performance of, of their um, their investments. And, you know, that would obviously affect that, that movement or that shift, I would think, toward, toward uh, adopting captive options. So thank you, Pete, for some useful analysis of the likely legislative priorities over the next few months, both before and after any inauguration of a new president. Let's focus on tax next. And I was very happy to be joined by a friend of the podcast, Mikhail Rabstein, partner in the EY Tax Practice and EY America's Captive Insurance Services co-leader. We spoke at around 9.30am Eastern Time on Friday. So, Mike, really, really appreciate you coming onto the podcast uh, Friday, Friday morning where you are, and uh, things moving very quickly now after three days of, of you know, topsy turvy news. Um, let's let's talk about Joe Biden first and and his of what we know about his his kind of corporate tax policy and how he how he views business and how he might treat them uh, regarding tax policy. Obviously, in 2016 campaign, and then in in 2017. The, the big headline from Donald Trump and his victory was a huge reduction in, in corporation tax, which came down from 35% to, to 21% at the end of 2017. Is there anything on that kind of level, Mike, which uh, will have a, an immediate impact on and business and particularly the way that they, they use their, their captive insurers in, in the short to, uh, short to medium term? Yeah, there are definitely things to address and definitely things to be on the lookout for. Before we dive into uh, Biden's policy, let's just take a quick 30-second spin to where we are. Right now, all eyes are on what actually will happen with the presidency and all eyes are on what will happen with the Senate. House, I think, is a little being watched a little less because there's still a difference in seats and the the folks who are planning for the future really looking to what will ultimately happen will that will be a democratic presidency senate and house or will the senate remain um, for the republican party and that will provide additional balance of um, when decisions are made and how those decisions will be made so right now the planning whether that planning changed since two weeks ago three weeks ago when projections were different to the three days you know, ago to now, literally as of last night and this morning, obviously companies are looking looking to maybe tweak some of their projections. So with that, let's, let's go back to your original question. So how does Biden's proposal now compare to what uh, Trump proposed and did in 2017? So with Biden, uh, parts of the proposal are in a way undoing some of the reductions that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did. They have proposed at least to increase the tax rate 
to 28%. There are end of some of the other planning ideas or and not so much planning ideas, but, but certain credits, uh, certain provisions of the CARES Act that was passed and um, in the 2020, they're also looking to some of the other provisions that will increase minimum tax, not so much in the AMT way, but there will be at least a proposed minimum tax on certain corporations with certain threshold of income. Um, there's some international tax provisions as well, which we can talk about. But overall, it's not a complete undoing of what, what Tax Cuts and Jobs Act did, but it's, it's going to change some of the things both on the corporate side and on the personal side, because for some of the companies that plan their captive insurance affairs are in the you know flow through structures, their uh, family office businesses, their um, S corporations, and that will end up on one side at least uh, potentially on somebody's personal tax return, and that will need to be considered as well. So definitely something to watch. Um, there are a few areas, like I said, corporate tax and personal tax that will go up for a certain level of individuals and corporations. And that will have impact on, on the planning because obviously companies are looking to obtain business insurance and, and tax benefits from these structures. Yeah, so let, let's dig a bit deeper into that then, Mike, if possible. You, you said there, I think, Joe Biden, the plan was to to, to move the, the, the federal income tax up to 28%. Obviously, that would need to have a blessing of the Senate, as we said, and, that, and that's still a little bit unclear. Um, if that was, to, let's say that that was to happen, what would be... Do organizations change the, the way that they, the, the degree to which they use their captive insurers, whether they're offshore or onshore? Does it, does it have an impact on, on those structures? Uh, yes, it, it will have some impact and it's in, in various areas. Um, it's actually funny because we are working with companies right now that are looking to either pull the trigger or not pull the trigger uh, before the year end to place the captive in place. Um, just like we saw with Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the companies executed their transactions at 35% tax rate knowing that, at least in the tax space, um, the transaction will reverse at 21% tax rate. Um, it also helped companies assess their cross-border solutions because looking at country, uh, companies that operate in multiple countries, companies look to potentially bring risk onshore versus what they used to do is offshore the risk to a lower tax jurisdiction. With the raise of the corporate tax rate, granted not to the level of pre-tax cuts and jobs act of 35%, but to 28%, the companies will need to reassess that. How they operate, what is their effective tax rate? Should they bring the risk onshore and potentially subject it to 28% tax rate where overall effective tax rate for the corporation may rise? Or if they have put something in play in 2020, 2019, how will that be impacted now? From the financial statement perspective, for example, revaluing deferred tax assets and deferred tax liabilities related to the arrangement will create an effective tax rate hit for some of the companies and that will need to disclose that. So, you know, changes in the carry deferreds, changes in the overall projection of what the effective tax rate will be the probably two main items that companies will look to to assess whether they either pull the trigger before the year end to put something in place, whether they delay something, putting something in place into next year or the year after. Or how will that in general impact? Because again, companies were saying that when tax rate dropped, the benefit of, of the captive on the tax side, that now reinsurance and insurance benefits and centralization of risk are absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal and, and big benefits for the companies. But on the tax side, the, the benefit did drop from 35 to 21%, and now it was going back to 28. So 
again, that will be part of the considerations the way we see it. Yeah, really interesting, Mike. And it's really good to get that insight that, you know, if people think that sometimes these big ticket or big events don't impact our nice little world of, of captain insurance, I think you've really explained there why it is so relevant and it could even have an impact on the kinds of formation activity we see in the next two months. I think that's really fascinating and, and something that maybe you and I can review again, maybe in the first quarter of next year to see how that did, did end up playing out. Okay, the other the other area uh, which was a big part of of Trump's the Trump administration and 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 had an impact on captives was this beat tax. And Mike, you you myself and Paul, we did quite a few webinars, I believe, uh, last or three or four years ago now, you know, talking all about this and how it impacted captives. I don't want to go over it too much in detail now, but beat was a big part of Trump's tax plans and it did have an impact on captive and international insurance programs. Any indication there that that would be unraveled or amended in some way by, by a Biden administration? No, not, not necessarily. Uh, at least I haven't seen anything specific um, to the beat. However, uh, there are international tax provisions in the Biden's proposal. Uh, guilty is being one of them. Um, obviously, guilty is already in existence, but there are some changes to the guilty regime and the way it will apply. There are also proposed sanctions for facilitating illegal corporate tax avoidance or harmful tax competition, which we know sometimes when such broad proposals are made, they're used, at least before all the definitive guidance comes out, very broadly, and they sweep different transactions, not necessarily ones that are made for tax avoidance or uh, harmful tax practices, but will sweep them just for review purposes. So again, proposals were made. Um, can't say that all of them are very detailed and we can determine immediately how they would apply to the captive space. But, you know, between obviously IRS continuing uh, on its path for the A31B reviews, uh, companies trying to uh, put a little more bulletproofing with the transfer pricing studies, with tax opinions. I think the industry in general is going the right way to uh, show the government that they're playing along and they're doing it for the right reasons and updating the right support. But that's not to say that someone in the government will say, well, let's take a second look at some of these transactions and, and put them under the microscope. We know that in captive practice happens all the time or periodically. So we'll just have to wait and see. Well, thank you to Mike, and always great to hear from him, and, and plenty of food for thought for US captives, and, and potentially those organizations with captives administering multinational programs with, with, a, with a, a footprint in the US. Now, last but certainly not least, it is important to get some market reaction to events of the past few days, and how our investment partners, London and Capital, see this impacting portfolios and captive insurance asset management strategies particularly. I spoke to Chris DL, Executive Director, and Sanjay Joshi, Head of Fixed Income at the firm on Thursday morning Eastern time. Welcome, Chris and Sanjay, back to the Global Captive Podcast for this US election special episode. We are recording this conversation on Thursday lunchtime, UK time. So an official result has still not arrived. So we should be cautious in terms of interpreting what happens next, but we're going to put all the usual clauses in there. I'm going to avoid too much political analysis or speculation, as I'm sure none of us would profess to be experts on the political side of things. But the situation as it stands does seem to suggest a Joe Biden win on the presidential race. But I think importantly, in this context, uh, on the investments discussion, the Senate probably going to be remaining 
under Republican control. Now, that could still change with the prospect of January runoffs in at least one race. But Sanjay, what can the activity in the equity and bond markets over the last couple of days. Tell us about investor sentiments and how they feel about the current situation. Hi, Richard. Yes, it's been a long 72 hours. And I suppose the markets, in a sense, are giving a positive vote, a positive sign in terms of the movements we've seen both in the equity market and the bond markets. Um, I suppose what the the investors are really saying is two things. First of all, a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines waiting to come in. Secondly, that we do know that fiscal policy will be loosened come what may, but the magnitude, the quantum of the fiscal loosening may not be as large as as, as we thought previously, which is helping the bond market, whereas the equity market is focusing on the fact that rates will remain lower for longer as we had expected, but also that there will be some further fiscal loosening coming down the road. But also, I think, crucially, is the the makeup of the president and the Senate that the potential tax hikes that may have taken place under a Democratic uh, Senate plus president may not take place now, which, of course, provides a secondary fillip to the risk markets, particularly the equity market. But I think the interesting point here is that last week, coming into the election, we had quite a significant sell-off in risk. There was also fear that long-end bond yields would rise, and all of that has been reversed, and that is predicated on the basis that the Federal Reserve will remain in play for much longer. If, uh, and again, I do say a big if at this point, if it is a Joe Biden presidency and there is a change of administration, what do we know about his likely policies and priorities over the coming years and how that might impact things? That's a very interesting question. It's a crucial question. Actually, and I'll also come back to what happens if actually President Trump is still there. I think in terms of um, a President Biden with a, a Republican Senate, There's a couple of things I think one needs to focus on. First and foremost, the renewal of support for consumers and corporates, particularly consumers, that is on the verge of lapsing, that should be renewed. Uh, So we will get a second fiscal package, which will be very similar to the first fiscal package, which is now behind us. But it's the extra elements to the democratic package that may not now take place. First of all, up to a 7 trillion 10-year infrastructure plan general uh, spending announcement was predicated on taxes going up. Corporation tax hike up to 28% plus increase in personal tax rates for those earning over $400,000. That may well be difficult to get through the Republican Senate. So I think the context, the, the flavor of fiscal policy therefore changes from being an exceptionally large bazooka style fiscal policy move uh, to something which is going to be somewhat more restrained under uh, a the, the, under the uh, under a potential Biden presidency, but with a Republican Senate. However, let's say that President Trump is still in place with a Republican Senate, but of course the Congress still remains as it was. What then we're going to see is, of course, no tax hikes coming through at all, but a difficult to get a very large fiscal package through Congress. So we get back to where we were, i.e. restrained fiscal policy. Yes, there will be more support, but it's the central bank that remains very much in play. 
Yeah, and of course, we do have a couple of months, really, until any change of administration or any change in makeup of the of, of the Senate. How about uh, how we might see any of that fiscal support that might be coming over the next weeks and months as the COVID crisis continues through the winter and, and prior to any yeah. change of administration? Yeah, and then that's a crucial question. You know, what we are seeing is restrictions and lockdowns coming into place in Europe as the virus surges. And of course, in the background, in the, even in the last 72 hours, we are hitting very large numbers of virus in the United States. So the consumers, they need help now, particularly those that are still, you know, those that lost their jobs um, back during when the COVID first started. And it is imperative that they get the help today uh, rather than wait for January, February of next year. Now, I find it difficult even today to see a very quick fiscal program coming through the way that the whole political system is set up. And I think that is a major issue, um, that we're not going to get the support before Christmas that is now necessary for consumers and even for some companies that still require liquidity. They still require a position uh, where they, they need help because the economy is still fractured. Even though we saw this significant bounce in Q3, the situation remains that the economy is still significantly smaller than it was previous to the COVID lockdown. So I think this is crucial. And this is also what really, in a sense, the bond markets are pricing in, that it is difficult to see short-term fiscal boosts coming through. Therefore, the economy remains weaker, and therefore the central bank remains in play for much longer. And one other comment I will add is that, of course, it's a very different situation uh, in Asia, Europe, and the US now. Europe is really lagging in terms of restrictions and lockdowns, whereas the two sort of extremes of that Asia and Europe. Uh, There is very little appetite for restrictions and lockdowns. These economies are opening up. But of course, there's a lot of damage that needs to be that, that, that needs to be put behind us as well. Great. Thank you, Sanjay. Really, really good to have that insight. And uh, of course, many scenarios still open to us. So I do appreciate you giving us kind of both sides of the coin or, or three sides of the coin, if that makes sense. Um, Chris, let's bring you in now on the kind of making this all directly relevant to captives and, and captive investment portfolios. You know, what, what should captive owners be looking to take and, and captive uh, boards, investment committees be looking to take from some of the topics Sanjay's just been talking about. And is there any immediate action that that should be required in terms of adjusting investment strategies? Thanks, Richard. Yeah. I mean, in terms of how we parlay, uh, you know, our views and and, and particularly, you know, this recent election result into client portfolios, I think, to be honest, having looked at where we are today with the assumptions that uh, that we do get a a Biden presidency and and where we have a divided Congress, where we've got the House obviously controlled by the Democrats and the Senate controlled by the Republicans, I think it's difficult really to make an argument that the results from this election should have any real meaningful impact on a captive's long-term investment approach or their asset allocation or even their investment objectives. That said, I think one thing, one trend that we certainly saw in the the beginning of the year was that there are a number of captives who de-risked this year and they've perhaps sat on the sidelines since March, April time when we had the COVID lows uh, and and the the broader panic around, around COVID. Those captives, I think, now should really be taking another look at their allocations and perhaps thinking about putting money back to work, uh, particularly now that the election has delivered this sort of seemingly politics as usual result with the divided with divided Congress. 
for example, we've been working with a number of captives who are carrying a higher than normal amount of cash on their balance sheet, and, and we're, we're getting them started with sort of a quasi-cash strategy of low-duration, low-risk corporate bonds that really deliver a meaningful return net of fees that keeps up with inflation. That kind of approach allows captives to perhaps increase risk slowly over time if they're working their way into the market. Um, but it also provides a better option than sitting in zero yielding money market funds. I think the reality is you're not getting paid for, for, for cash and we don't we don't see that, that captives will get paid uh, for sitting in cash for, for a number of years yet, as Sanjay referred um, to the fact that the Fed firmly in control here and uh, low interest rates are very much here to stay. So in summary, what impact does the election result have on captive portfolios? I think that can be boiled down to a very quick summary. Politics as usual in the US, no need to adjust long-term allocations. No one's going to be getting paid for, for sitting in cash, though. Um, and so despite the dire headlines about COVID, captives should be investing today. And, and they should be also you know, bearing in mind that the globe, we are seeing the global economy open up, particularly in Asia um, and, and, and certainly in, in some of the, some of that in, in the US as well. So nothing, nothing to, to really fear here. Um, a slow, steady approach should be, should be adopted and, um, and certainly um, captives should be thinking about putting money to work. Well, thank you to Chris DL and Sanjay Joshi at London and Capital for that markets and investment strategy update. And to our two other guests, Pete Halperin, partner at Passage Law Firm, and Mikhail Rabstein, partner in the EY Tax Practice and EY America's Captive Insurance Services co-leader, for joining me in the last couple of days at relatively short notice and in quite a fast-changing environment. Well, there are a few other areas resulting from this presidential election that will likely be worth a discussion in the future. The political risk and trade environment landscape could shift significantly and of course we haven't even touched at all on the healthcare sector implications that will for sure be of huge relevance to the increasing number of captives writing medical stop loss and employee benefits programs and of course those captives owned by healthcare companies themselves but for now thank you for joining us on this special episode reacting to the u.s presidential election 2020 and we will be back with our usual schedule of episodes from this sunday just two days time and more gcp shorts before the end of the year too so stay safe stay well and see you next time captives